Welcome to another episode of The Empire's New Clothes. I'm your host, Brad from MacArthur. We're bringing you another bonus episode today, podcast version only. Hope you enjoy. We're going back through our catalog, and we've got a conversation with Jesse Felder. Some of you may be familiar with him from the Felder Report, but Jesse began his professional career at Bear Stearns. He later co-founded a multi-billion dollar hedge fund firm in Santa Monica, California. And then he eventually moved to Ben. He's been doing the Felder Report and his podcast ever since then. This conversation was recorded just after COVID began, but it's, it's a bit of a look back. It's looking at how did the Fed get here? How has our current monetary and fiscal policy been shaped by past events? And what does this all add up to? So it's just as timely as it was then as it is now. Jesse brings his unique perspective and his way of looking at financial markets and conditions and assimilating them in very concise, easy to understand ways. So if you're looking for a big picture, well-rounded understanding of how our systems work today, macroeconomics, financial markets, the Fed, then this is the conversation for you. I hope you enjoy. Hey there. Hey, Jesse, how's it going? Good. How you doing? Yeah, good. Just, you know, locked up. How about you? <laughs> Same here. Yeah, it's been, it's getting brutal. My wife's working from home and it's just the two of us and the dogs and it's just, yeah, it's getting, we're getting a little, uh, stir crazy. crazy. Yeah. yeah. I, I saw that you're in Bend. Yeah. I, um, I spent a ton of time there. I love that place. Central Oregon's, I think one of my favorites. Okay. Yeah. We've been here 20 years and, uh, Probably seen it change quite a bit. Yeah, it's grown a ton. So, um, but it's it's been good. I mean, it's it's an awesome place, and so yeah, makes sense why a lot of people want to move here. Yeah, it does. So, I've read some of your blog posts. I've read some of your articles, and I came across a couple sentences you wrote that really sum up a lot of what we're trying to visualize here. And so, I was just going to read those and then ask you to just flush that out a little more. So the Fed's price insensitive buying of treasuries inspired investors price insensitive buying of corporate debt, which enabled corporations price insensitive buying of their own shares, which both inspired and was also enabled by price insensitive buying on the part of the equity investor. The moral of the story here is that widespread price insensitive buying eventually guarantees bad outcomes. Yeah, there's there's obviously a lot of different moving parts there. I was trying to simplify it as, as much as I could. Um, but really, I think one of the most important things, um, my friend John Hussman calls it the iron law of investing. Um, it's one of my favorite quotes from Warren Buffett is, um, the price you pay determines your rate of return. Uh, and that is really the most important, I think, uh, key to investing that anybody needs to know is if you pay an expensive price, you're going to get a bad rate of return. And if you pay a cheap price, you're going to get a good rate of return. And it's and it's really common sense, right? If you can, you know, there are probably people who I, I know there are people who, um, you know, uh, look for bargains on Craigslist and, you know, any kind of different stuff, right? I'm, I'm going to try and find a, a mountain bike that I can buy from two, three hundred bucks sell to somebody else for five, six, seven hundred. That's what we should be trying to do in investing. And so when you become a price insensitive um, buyer, um, people don't do this really in any any other area of their lives. They they are price sensitive when it comes to grocery shopping, buying a house, buying a car. People care about the price they're paying 
they do research uh, to try and make sure that they don't overpay. Um, you know, buyer's remorse is a, is a real thing, except uh, when it comes to the, the short term in the stock market and the financial markets. And so what I was trying to say in that piece is it really begins with uh, the Federal Reserve and their quantitative easing policies. So quantitative easing was essentially a policy the Federal Reserve created to go in and buy treasury bonds, treasury bills, treasury notes. And uh, regardless of the price, we were going to buy these things to try and drive interest rates down um, across the curve. So from short-term interest rates to long-term interest rates, we're going to buy all these securities to try and lower, lower interest rates to make it cheaper for people to borrow. Uh, and what that enabled was uh, corporate America to borrow money cheaper than they've ever been able to do in history. And so it, was, it became attractive for uh, corporations to go borrow record sums of money. Let's go issue bonds and uh, because we can borrow money. Uh, in Europe, um, you know, American corporations were borrowing money at 0%, um, extremely low interest rates. And even in the United States, you know, AAA corporations like Apple were borrowing at low single digits. And so um, when you have such a cheap cost of capital, that enables those companies to say, I can borrow at 2 3%. I can go buy back my stock in the open market uh, and push the share price higher uh, in order to um, essentially enrich executives uh, who are mainly compensated through st uh, stock options. So when your compensation mostly comes through stock options, you have a huge incentive to push the stock price higher because you can essentially uh, you know, create your own bonuses, uh, I guess, if you will and uh, boost your own pay in that way. The other side of you know, stock buybacks too is that it allows companies to reduce the, the, count, the, the shares outstanding um, that they have out in the market. And so that inflates their earnings per share numbers too. So executives are more likely to hit their earnings per share growth targets, get those more stock options. So, uh, so the low interest rates enabled the price insensitive buying on behalf of corporations buying back their stock. Normally, if you were an investor, you'd want a company to only buy back their stock when it was trading at a cheap valuation, kind of below intrinsic value. Um, and, and that way it makes economic sense. But when the stock price is expensive, it's the same thing as an investor. Nobody should you know, be really paying expensive prices for anything, especially equities. And so that's exactly what corporations did, though. They borrowed, we have $6 trillion of, of new corporate debt since the financial crisis over the last 10 years. And most of that money has gone into buying back stock at price without you know any type of price sensitivity. That was also, uh, I guess, that that boom in stock prices created by stock buybacks encouraged a lot of investors to just go, I'm going to put my money in the stock market, at, regardless of the price. So passive investing at the same time is this idea of. I don't need to do any research uh, on the stock market or individual stocks. I'm just going to put my money in the whole stock market and hope that the stock market is going to go higher over time. And the fact that it was going higher because of all these stock buybacks was a real good encouragement to people who wanted to be invest passively in this way. But that was also another feedback loop. The, the fact that they were buying without any price sensitivity uh, meant that these companies that were making uneconomic purchases and leveraging up their balance sheets with lots of debt were not being held to account by investors who would be normally doing the research and saying, you know what, 
look at what you're doing to the balance sheet. You've become, you've hugely leveraged up this business to buy back stock. This doesn't make sense. So kind of what a normal investor might think. Passive investors were just pouring money into these stocks regardless of any of the economic decisions that they were making. So we had the price insensitive buying that started with the Fed that moved, that enabled price insensitive buying on behalf of corporations, which encouraged passive investors and the passive investors money flows into these, these corporations, regardless of their behavior, um, kind of enabled that feedback loop of ever, you know, uh, higher prices. And uh, now we face a situation where a lot of these companies are far more indebted than they've ever before uh, been before in history. And so this, the, the uh, I guess the financial system, but mainly corporate balance sheets are more fragile than they've been in a long, long time. I mean, much more fragile than they were going into the financial crisis. And so this is what makes uh, this current economic downturn um, especially precarious is that uh, there's just so much corporate debt out there right now. The the corporate debt, has that debt been even tried to be fixed at all yet? Is it, you say that's a bit of an issue at the moment. Is anyone dealing with that? Yeah, well, the Fed, I, you know, I've, I've been writing for the past couple of months that what's going to happen when this debt, uh, you know, becomes problematic is the Federal Reserve is going to move from buying just treasury securities to buying corporate debt because otherwise there's going to be a huge we're going to have another minsky moment to use a term that became popular after the financial crisis hyman minsky was an economist who essentially was uh lived in obscurity for a long period of time until the financial crisis and people realized his writings essentially predicted the financial crisis that we go through credit cycles where you start out with lending that makes a ton of sense that you're basically just lending against hard assets saying, okay, I'll lend you this money, but against your house, but it's secured against your house so that if you don't pay me, I'm going to take your house as collateral. And then it moves into um, lending against cash flows, which, okay, that's a little more risky, right? Cash flows can go down in a recession. And then you move to uh, what he called Ponzi finance, which is you're lending to corporations who can't even pay back the money out of cash flows they can only pay back that money by refinancing, um, by, by taking on more debt. And so that's kind of the Ponzi stage of the credit cycle. And the, the deeper you go in that Ponzi stage, the more fragile the financial systems be, becomes. And because we've seen so much of this Ponzi type of finance during the current cycle, it makes the, the, the system super fragile right now. That if we, had, if we have a downturn, um, uh, you know, and, and I think the Fed has known this, and a lot of people have known this and worried about this, for the last few years is that if we were to have an economic downturn with so much Ponzi finance, it's going to be probably lead to the biggest corporate debt bust that we've seen in history. And so uh, what the Fed is doing now uh, as part of this downturn enabled by the Treasury and, and Congress is to start buying corporate bonds uh, so that these companies, you know, to, to try and prop up the, the corporate bond market. Um, now, they can only buy investment grade corporate bonds, which means only the highest rated issuers. And there's a lot of kind of junk rated um, bonds out there that the Fed's just not able to purchase at the, at the moment right now. So there's uh, only so much the Fed can do to prevent a debt bust fr from happening. So um, that's that's kind of how they're looking to address it right now. But it, it probably can't prevent a pretty significant bust uh, at the lower rungs of the credit market.
Do you think given um, just a make or break of, oh, we can't touch those bonds or they might get wildly creative and use an intermediary and flow funds to support that destabilized bond market? How desperate could they might get given an actual fallout? Or would they just kind of stop be like, we actually have morals, if you could call it that, and we won't, we won't go farther? Yeah, no, I, I think before it's, before it's all said and done, they will do everything in their power to prevent that type of a huge debt bust from happening. And, you know, that could lead to them buying junk bonds. And there's been a lot of talk about that could lead to them even buying stocks uh, in, in, you know, uh, op- making purchases in the open market of, of equities, which, um, you know, is, is not unprecedented around the world. There are other central banks that are already doing this. And so um, I, I, I firmly believe that the Fed will probably go that route at some point because, uh, they believe it's their job to prevent this type of a bust from happening, and and uh, Congress sounds seems like will give them the authority to do that. You know, when when it comes time, can they stop this from happening, or is it somewhat inevitable? Uh, well, so the biggest problem with monetary policy uh, <clears throat> is the unintended consequences of monetary policy. So. Um, you know, the the Fed would say that this corporate debt bubble was an unintended consequence of them trying to save us from another Great Depression after the financial crisis. So they would say we had to lower interest rates to try and support the economy. We had no way of stopping corporations from taking on so much debt. That was kind of an unintended consequence. So I think it's more a question of um, what are the unintended consequences of extreme experimental monetary policy? Uh, the unintended consequence uh, of, and it, this dates back to, you know, Greenspan in the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, the, the, the dot-com mania, um, you know, was created as an unintended consequence of uh, mo- extreme monetary policy of Greenspan coming to the rescue in 1987 and trying to rescue the stock market. And again, in 1998, with rescuing long-term capital management and I guess flooding the economy was doing really, really well, aside from this one hedge fund that blew up. And by putting, and then also in the lead up to the Y2K potentially problem, there was, a, you know, in 1999, we thought a lot of the computers were going to crash when the computers, you know, uh, turned over from 99 to 2000. And so Greenspan, Greenspan flooded the financial system with liquidity and the NASDAQ went up like 100% in a year. So he would say, I'm just trying to help the economy, but he created the dot-com boom and this huge dot-com bust where you saw a lot of NASDAQ stocks go down 90% plus in 2001, 2002. Uh, and then Greenspan to, you know, protect from the fallout of the dot-com bust lowered interest rates to 1% for like a year, which at the time was ex- very extreme. I mean, it doesn't seem extreme because we've had 0% interest rates for a long time, but he lowered to 1% and created a housing bubble. And you would say, well, that was an unintended consequence. I was just trying to save the economy. But then we got the housing bubble, which led to the financial crisis. And so this, this series of booms and busts are all what the Fed would you know, call unintended consequences. So the Fed may be able to prevent us from uh, having this huge corporate debt bust, 
by buying corporate bonds, maybe eventually buying junk bonds and stocks. But the money printing that they're going to have to do in order to, to save us from that uh, could create real problems for our currency, um, the value of the dollar. And, um, you know, that the, I think the unintended consequence going forward could be pretty significant. The dollar is the world's reserve currency. It's used in trade all around the world. And there's a lot of benefits that come to the United States because of that. Um, if we are going to print trillions and trillions of dollars to save us from a corporate debt bust, that could uh, mean a lot of people don't want to do business in dollars anymore, even hold dollars anymore, because the currency will be debased by the money printing that's going to happen. And so um, I, I, I don't know if they can save us from a corporate debt bust, but I think in trying to save us in pulling out all the stops, they might create another uh, you know, big problem in the process. Is this a story of dealing with a real problem and trying to fix it, but somewhat kicking it somewhere else and then dealing with it there and kicking it somewhere else? And so you're saying we're potentially going to fix it here, but move it to the currency. This would help a little bit to understand why the Fed was created. The Fed is actually, most people don't know, the third central bank that we've had in the United States. The other first two failed. Um, because of the, a lot of the problems that we see the, the current central bank doing. And lawmakers got to the point where they said, you guys only make things worse. We don't need a central bank anymore. And so it took a lot of convincing in the early 1900s uh, for Congress to come around to the idea. There was a panic um, in the early 1900s where J.P. Morgan, um, the man, had to come in and essentially backstop the financial system per personally. And that was the only thing that stopped this financial crisis from becoming bigger. And, and that really convinced Congress to say, OK, we need we need a central bank. Every other major country in the world has one. But really, the central bank's role should only be lender of last resort. So if people are pulling money out of the banking system, we have a bank panic. The Fed can come in and say, OK, these institutions that are well capitalized and wouldn't otherwise fail, we'll come in and we'll make sure that you have, we'll inject cash, we'll make sure you're not going to fail just because of a run on the bank. So the Fed was supposed to just, just be the- just kind of sit back, generally. Yeah. Gen generally just sit back. We're not going to try and manage the economy, interest rates, any of these other things. We're just going to come in as the lender of last resort when there's a, when there's a banking panic. Um, eventually their role changed and, um, in the seventies, the, uh, the, uh, Federal Reserve Act was amended so that the Fed was explicitly tasked by Congress to try and manage the economy, uh, essentially to try and keep interest rates, uh, or keep inflation, um, uh, low and to, uh, try and create maximum, uh, employment. Um, that's essentially what people call the dual mandate of the Fed, um, so since that time, the Fed has seen it as their job to try and prevent recessions and try and make recessions less painful uh, to people. And, and it's a really noble thing. But when you think about what's the idea behind this, the idea behind this is that we should never have recessions. And if you understand any natural system in nature or anything else, everything goes in cycles. And you have, you have to have an up cycle and you have to have a down cycle that kind of washes out the excess, excesses of the down cycle. Um, the Fed trying to prevent recessions, all they've done is exacerbate this boom bust cycle, make it even bigger and um, actually more damaging in the down cycle than it otherwise would be. 
So, um, you know, by trying to prevent recessions, they, they create they make these booms go bigger than they otherwise would. And then the bust is obviously bigger um, for that reason. And so the Fed has gone from, you know, like I said, the Greenspan helped create the dot com mania, which is a stock market bubble, um, which was the biggest bubble since the 1929 stock market bubble with, when that crash led to the Great Depression. So you could see the Greenspan was like, oh, no, we're going to have another Great Depression. So created the housing bubble. Um, over the last 10 years, we've seen monetary policy that's so extreme. It's more extreme than anything we've ever seen before. And it's not only created a stock market bubble. It's boosted real estate prices and pushed bond, bond prices, corporate bonds, treasury bond valuations to extremes also. So I've, I've called it the everything bubble the Fed has created this time. And so that's that's really, it's not just this corporate bond thing, it's they've created a stock market bubble and they're trying to hold up this whole edifice uh, right now. And it's, and it's you know, um, they've never been able to prevent a bust in the past. Uh, they've only been able to, uh, once we've had the bust, um, try and put in policies in place that, that make recovery happen quicker. Uh, and as I've said, you know, before the, the unintended consequences of all those actions usually create other problems that we have to deal with down the road. So is this almost like our forest fire policy for so long is suppression, 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 and then we have these absolute ragers that destroy everything? I think that's the perfect analogy. That is the perfect analogy is that, you know, the, if you look at the history of the Forest Service, they went through a time where they said, we're going to prevent all forest fires. And then you had some of the most devastating fires in you know, the history of our country because you need the fires to come through regularly to clear out all that underbrush and you know, all that kind of stuff that grows. And, and the Forest Service learned their lesson, right? We need to, and we're, now we're doing controlled burns and all these kinds of things. And the Fed will, I'm, I hope someday, realize that that type of policy in, for, for the economy is just as important as it is for you know, our forests, is that allowing recessions uh, to clean out, um, you know, the, the, the dead, uh, you know, waste underneath the, you know, on the forest floor and, and whatnot. I mean, you also look at, um, I think it's, you know, sequoia trees need fire in order to be able to seed new trees. Uh, without fire, uh, the sequoia forests would, would essentially die out and, and go extinct. And so there's examples of that in economics, too, where you need, um, you need these kind of washout recessionary events, you know, for the health, the, the long-term health of the economy. Tying it back to the currency, how do you see this affecting the U.S. dollar and what are the play outs or the knock-on effects of that? Well, you know, when the Fed started quantitative easing, started buying all these bonds during the financial crisis and afterwards, a lot of people said we're going to see inflation pick up and it just didn't. We didn't see inflation take off. Um, and that was because all of this buying stayed in the financial system, right? They would buy they would buy treasury bonds and treasury bills and things and lower interest rates, and that would make people buy corporate bonds. But all of that money essentially stayed in the financial system and didn't get into the hands of ordinary people who would go spend it and then create inflation. So the difference today is that we're seeing a two trillion dollar fiscal stimulus bill today, and that's being funded by the Fed's money printing. So how does the government get $2 trillion to go spend, to give to people, individuals, to give to small businesses, to do a, give to, to hire people, to do all these things? They have to borrow that money. They have to issue new debt, 
well, who's going to buy all that debt? The Federal Reserve says, okay, we'll buy all the debt that you're going to issue. So it's essentially uh, monetizing the debt. We're going to, the Fed's going to print money to buy the bonds that you're issuing in order to pay out all this money. So this combination of fiscal and monetary stimulus today is something we haven't seen for a really, really long time. And, in, and throughout history, it's always led to inflation. It is essentially the debasement of the currency. So the, the term debasement comes from the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire would go conquer new places and they'd get more silver and then they could use that additional money to go spend and you know build things and, and whatever. Uh, eventually, the Romans uh, wanted to spend more on wars and things than they had coming into the empire. So they didn't have the silver to mint enough coins to pay for everything they wanted to pay for. So what did they do? They started putting more base metals into that silver. That's the term debasing the currency. So every silver, every gold, every coin that they created was worth less and less and less until you got to the late stages of the Roman Empire. And there's very little silver left in those coins. And so the money just wasn't worth what it was back when it was mostly silver. And so that is what the, I, I believe that we're embarking on today is a process of debasing the currency by just, we want to spend more money than we, we have. Uh, the fiscal deficit is already over a trillion dollars. It's going to probably push two, three trillion dollars a year over the next few years. That's two or three trillion dollars per year of money we need to spend that we don't have. The Fed's going to essentially print that money to, so that we can spend it. And so the, the, the amount of currency in circulation is going to expand very rapidly, and the value of each one of those dollars is going to go down pretty rapidly, too. And so when uh, overseas investors, let's say there's a lot of Japanese investors, European investors that invest in U.S. assets because they're higher yielding, when they see that the government is debasing the currency, they're going to say, shoot, I don't want to hold dollars anymore because – the value of those dollars is going to go down faster than the interest that they're paying me. So that can create uh, a decline in the value of the dollar versus other world currencies, which can also create uh, uh, an inflationary feedback loop, too, in the respect that everything we buy from overseas when the dollar value goes down becomes more expensive. And so then you start seeing an inflationary uh, dynamic um, through the currency also. So it's, uh, I think that's the real big risk with what's what we're seeing today. Can you even perceive that the Fed and now the uh, government with its fiscal spending could get us through a slowdown, a downturn, a recession, and have another period of growth and another downturn before we start seeing impacts in the currency? Or is this, are we kind of on the path already and it's just a bunch of malaise until the currency inflates away. There's a lot of ambiguity there, of course, but yeah. So I think what I think what's likely to happen is this stimulus uh, bill that was just passed is so huge, and the Fed Fed's money printing is so huge right now that as soon as the, the coronavirus um, uh, kind of passes through, um, and and that's kind of an unknowable. We don't know when that that's going to happen, but. Um, there's probably going to be a big boom on the other side of that, just because there's been there's so much money printing and so much fiscal stimulus coming into the economy. There will probably be a big boom, uh, but in inflationary adjusted terms, you know, it, you can feel like I'm making a ton more money and uh, you know the economy is doing so much better. But uh, in real terms, so after inflation, 
those numbers are not going to be as fantastic as they feel probably because it will be uh, created by an inflationary inflationary boom. So I think we're 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 potentially going to go through a a stagflationary economic time right now where where we have these inflationary pressures already at work, but the economy is kind of stagnant. Um, and then we'll probably see a, a you know a big recovery coming out of the uh, coronavirus episode, um, but that could really lead to an inflationary problem. And the reason it's it's a, a bigger problem than it otherwise would be is because when the deficits are so large as they are today, uh, with the federal the federal government essentially spending so much, the Fed is limited in its ability to fight inflation. So normally, if inflation picks up. The Fed would say, okay, we're going to raise interest rates to try and slow down the economy and bring inflation back under wraps a little bit. But uh, because there's so much debt out there already right now and then we have such massive deficits, the Federal Reserve can't afford to raise interest rates even in an inflationary environment because we wouldn't be able to pay even service, pay, pay the interest on the debt. So, uh, you know, this, this is what happens to countries who get into the situation is that you 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 get to a point where you're you're issuing so much debt that uh inflation starts to take off and your central bank can't manage it because the central bank is forced to continue to monetize that debt rather than if they were to turn and say okay we're not going to do quantitative easing we're not going to buy the bonds anymore then who's going to buy the bonds and interest rates would shoot up and if the fed tried to raise interest rates on the short end to uh you know bring in inflation it would um uh, cause you know the the debt service the the interest on that debt to become too expensive and it could create uh, a debt spiral so mm-hmm. so it's a it's a the federal reserve has gone from a place where they have been able to set monetary policy the way they think is right to now where you you would call it um, fiscal dominance where the fiscal authorities are now uh, in charge of what's going on and the monetary authorities are essentially the federal reserve is forced to just do the the fiscal authorities bidding, which is you have to print money and buy our bonds because that's the only way this is going to work. We've been pushed in this corner where the tool we've been using is forced upon us, and it's the only tool we have at that point. Yeah, this, so there's is that, that that's part of it is that you know uh, we've we've been stimulating so much that I mean it's. Uh, you know, a lot of people use the analogy of um, a drug addict, you know, um, and, and that we've been just putting, injecting more and more heroin into this drug addict economy. And you're at the point now where you can't just take it away because what, what would happen? You would go through withdrawals and it would be an absolute nightmare. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 what the Fed is trying to do is just, OK, we just need more and more heroin to get to that high that the economy needs to get to. So the medicine's um, killing the patient. Right. In a sense. Yeah. yeah. The other the other side of it, too, is that what what monetary and fiscal stimulus do, but especially monetary stimulus does is let's say interest rates are at their normal natural level. And the Fed says we're going to lower interest rates below its normal natural level. So what does that do? It stimulates demand that wouldn't otherwise be there. So for example, let's say you're going to say in the next five years, I'm probably going to buy a car. But now the car dealer's offering 0% finance and you go, oh, great, it's a great time to buy a car. So I'm going to buy it today instead of two, three, four, five years from now. So monetary policy does this on a huge scale. It does that for corporations, for individuals, for everything. So it pulls this demand 
from the future to the present. So we pulled forward, we've essentially spent 20 years plus of pulling demand from the future to the present, right? So what, what does that leave? It leaves a vacuum of demand in the future, right? And so I just bought a new car. I don't need to buy another one for a long time. So that car that would have been a good boost to the economy two, three, four, five years from now is just not there anymore. And so the Fed is, is lowering interest rates, lowering interest rates, and they're getting to the point where there is no more demand to pull from the future anymore. Everybody who's bought a house, you know, was going to buy a house has bought one. Everybody who's going to buy a car. So this is kind of where we're, where, you know, somebody like Ray Dalio, uh, who runs the biggest hedge fund on the planet, says we're at the end of this great debt super cycle. This is a really big deal that all of this debt creation that we've seen since the early 80s has pulled forward demand from the future. And now interest rates are at zero. We can't pull demand from the future anymore. Uh, so, so now what? And it's a big open question. It means that the economic activity in the future is necessarily going to be much slower than it was in the past. And so that's why I kind of think we're going to see this kind of stagflationary environment. We have weak economic growth, but it's kind of punctuated by inflationary pressures too, kind of similar to what we saw in the 1970s. Wow. That's one of the best summations I think I've heard <laughs> is just borrowing from the future. I mean, it's so simple. We've now borrowed away. We've all, we've all spent, we've all consumed and so there's this vacuum of consumption, like you just mentioned, and yet also the quantitative easing, which has inflated um, asset prices and, and wealth, whereas leaving the real economy just kind of sitting here. I see parts of that as really creating a lot of this uh, wealth and inequality gap, which spurs the populism of the left and of the right. How, how do you see these policies of the last 10 years and 20 and 30 years affecting this growing wealth and income gap? And and how do you see these populist angers, both in the left and the right, affecting our nation from um, creating more and more of a dividing line? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one of the biggest the biggest trend that I've seen over the last 30 or 40 years uh, is the falling labor share of national income. If you just look at right, there's national income that the, the country creates. And a percentage of it goes to corporations and the rest goes to labor. And the divide um, has, you know, historically been been pretty even. You, but you go through these big cycles where, where maybe labor takes a greater share for a while and corporations take a smaller share. What we've seen over the last 40 years is corporations take their greatest share in history and the labor share of national income fall to its smallest in history. And I think this is really the biggest issue for uh, for inequality, and um, a big part of that is is policies that allowed corporations, you know, like in the 80s, um, allowing stock buybacks for 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 decades. Stock buybacks were considered uh, stock manipulation, and I believe they are stock manipulation. Uh, it's companies can go out into the uh, and, and do a tender offer whenever they want. They so said we want to buy back 100 million dollars worth of stock. The stock price is $16 a share today. We'll buy back as many shareholders who want to sell to us at 16. We'll, we'll buy back immediately. Uh, and that's that, and then shareholders have to say, okay, we'll accept the tender offer and we'll sell our shares to you. Um, kind of in a private transaction. Uh, corporations have always been able to do that because they're not manipulating the share price. But when they're going and saying, spending billions and billions and billions in the open market, just buying stock, 
that's pushing the share price higher. The stock buybacks have been the greatest, single greatest source of demand for, for stocks, for equity over the past 10 years. There's been no buyer that's been close. It's just corporations buying back stock, pushing their shares higher. So um, that's one of the things that in the 80s allowed companies to do this and uh, gave companies you know, an incentive um, to do that sort of thing. But uh, I think really globalization and the offshoring of labor um, combined with the demographic shift that we saw in the country was the biggest, uh, the biggest factor. Um, certainly, the, the central bank and Federal Reserve policies exacerbated this, but to understand um, the, the foundation of it, I think, is important, too, is that uh, when the baby boomers came into the workforce, that was a huge supply of new labor. And the baby boomers, there's no coincidence, really, that the baby boomers hit their peak earning years right at the peak of the dot-com mania. Right. So they're coming in, they're in their 50s and they're making more money than they're going to make in their whole you know, careers, whatever. And the stock market's doing awesome because they're putting money into retirement accounts and all this kind of stuff. But when you have this huge influx of or supply of labor come in, it means for corporations, they're like, oh, OK, we have plenty of labor to choose from. We don't have to. Right. So it's supply and demand. You increase the supply, it, it, it lowers the price that, that labor can demand for its wages. At the same time, corporations started offshoring labor to China and places overseas. And so you had this huge demographic surge of labor and you had a huge uh, surge of labor through globalization where countries can go say, OK, well, even the baby boomers are too expensive for me to hire. I'm going to hire some people in China. And so that pushed labor costs so low that corporations' profit margins went through the roof, just huge. They were making more money. Corporate profit margins in the last few years hit their highest levels um, in history. And so there's those dynamics, and those dynamics are both, both potentially shifting right now, which is a really good thing, I think, for labor, is that we're seeing when the as the baby boomers retire, subsequent generations are smaller generations, and so there's labor supply uh, constraints now. And we're seeing this shift of globalization. And one of the things I think we're learning from coronavirus is there are a lot of risks involved with that. Have you know, 90% of our 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 you know pharmaceuticals or or at least our um, you know antiviral stuff is manufactured in China. That's a big risk, right? If China's factories go down, that's you know means our healthcare can't really operate. And so I think we're seeing uh, a, a shift towards reshoring of labor at the same time too, kind of a deglobalization. Um, because the supply chain risks that we're seeing um, with globalization. So, you know, that said, the Federal Reserve took it upon themselves to create a wealth effect um, through the last 10 years. They said, we want to try boosting the economy by creating a wealth effect, which is essentially the same thing as trickle-down economics, the idea of if we give tax cuts to the wealthy, then they're going to go spend more and that's going to be good for everybody in society. We found that doesn't happen. When you give tax cuts to the wealthy, what do they do? They just get wealthier. They don't. They don't go spend that money. They they you know keep more of their investment capital and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so and that's the same thing that happened with uh, with the the economy over the last ten years. The Federal Reserve said we're going to come in, we're going to consciously cr lower interest rates, push people into corporate bonds, investors buying corporate bonds, push people into the stock market, try and push up. The value of all these assets so that people feel wealthier so that when they feel wealthier then they're going to go spend more and that's going to be good for the economy so it's very disingenuous for the fed to say 
we explicitly created a wealth effect, but we have no responsibility when it comes to wealth inequality. That's absolutely disingenuous. And because, you know, creating by creating a wealth effect, you're going to exacerbate wealth inequality. But a lot of that wealth inequality also can be attributed back to demographic changes and uh, and, and uh, through political decisions, you know, that, that allowed for, you know, globalization and all these other things and tax shelters for corporations and all this stuff too. So it's, it's a combination of all those things. And I think I'm hopeful that all those things are now in the process of shifting back in the favor of labor, which is going to be really good for uh, middle class and, you know, and, and working class people. Um, and it's going to be not so great for corporate America, but, but, Warren Buffett wrote about this in the year 2000 as part of the dot-com mania. And he said, he said, uh, corporations have been taking a greater share of the American pie for, for a long period of time. He goes, that, can, that can't last. If that were to last, you would see political problems um, in the United States. And that has lasted for the 20 years since he wrote yeah. that. And that's why we're seeing political problems today is because corporations have kept a too big of a slice of the pie for too long. And now we're seeing this rise of populist um, and even, you know, uh, socialist democratic, you know, policies to kind of rectify that, that, that issue. What do you see as the mechanics of that rectification? Is it these economic forces we've been talking about eventually coming into play and cleansing the system in a sense, or is it the anger that's there in these different populist groups kind of taking it back through different mechanisms or a combination of lots of different things. Yeah, I think it's a common, it's going to be a combination of three things. I think it's going to be demographics, right? The supply of labor as baby boomers are retiring. And, and this is one, um, one of the th economic things we've seen during this last 10 year cycle. That's unusual. We've seen a lot of older people staying in the labor force, which is pretty unusual. Um, but as those people retire out of the labor force, labor supply is going to go down and that's going to make, uh, you know, that, that, uh, bargaining power for labor, uh, you know, much stronger. That's going to be a benefit. I think we're also going to see a uh, trend away from globalization towards deglobalization, reshoring of labor, bring jobs back home because of these supply chain issues. And, you know, this trade war with China is more, more, more than a trade war. It's really kind of a, a, a it's, it's just a much bigger issue. It's uh, China wants to be the world economic leader and they're making, they're trying to make inroads around the world to try and dethrone the United States as uh, the, I guess the economic, um, you know, king of the hill kind of a thing. And so the trade war was, I, I think, just the beginning of this trend away from countries, um, offshoring over other labor over there and, and country uh, companies are going to start kind of bringing that back home as a, as a part of this longer term war for a lack of better word with, with China. Um, then I also think there's going to be political changes that are going to happen too that, that are going to go back in labor's favor. You see, you know, the, the, uh, young people are, you know, um, uh, electing people like, you know, um, AOC and, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders and looking for those types of politicians that are going to put their interests ahead of those interests of corporations. And that's that is just a, a trend that's only going to grow. And so as that trend grows, you're going to see it from the political front, I think the demographic front, and also from uh, a geopolitical front, too, in terms of globalization going into reverse. 
it's tragic in a sense, but it's also very exciting as an observer. Everything you've been mentioning is really big picture forces that are slowly marching towards some point in the future. And so it feels like there's so much coming together. Do you see all of these things shaking out within, as they say, with a, with a crisis, it happens very slowly and then suddenly all at once? Or do you see this as just this slow reshift of power structures and economic forces and, and markets happening over the next couple decades? Yeah, you know, the timing is always the, the most difficult piece. Yeah. Um, these things always <laughs> seem like, I mean, Warren Buffett said 20 years ago, that that uh, things are going to shift back in labor's favor, uh, favor, uh, and it's 20 years later, and they haven't at all. And so the timing is the is the most difficult piece. But I do think, um, you know, every crisis is an opportunity, and I think the financial crisis was an opportunity. We saw, uh, you know, with Occupy Wall Street, I think it was really the beginning of a lot of this kind of. Um, anti-corporatism, anti-monetarism type of policies and, and back to something that, you know, benefits uh, individual people. And it didn't really take off in, in the way that it probably should have at that time. But I think, you know, if we're going into another crisis right now, I think we already, we already are in the midst of another crisis right now. Um, this is another opportunity for those voices to, to uh, really make headway and, and, and gain some traction. Uh, in Washington and, and other places, and I, I think that's I think that's happening. Um, you know, we're seeing uh, a lot of change. A lot of people have written um, that you know the coronavirus is going to change the way we do things forever in a lot of different ways, in a lot of unforeseen ways, in ways that we we can't really see today. And I, and so I I think that you know it could happen um, over the next five, 10 years, uh, that this is going to play out, uh, and, and that this crisis will be a catalyst for it. It almost seems like that already that, you know, during the financial crisis, politicians on both sides of the aisle were totally against, um, you know, we're really worried about the budget and these types of things and spending too much on fiscal stimulus. And we're not seeing that this time at all. We're seeing a huge bipartisan, um, support for it, get hands in the money of the people. And so I think both parties are now seeing that uh, when they're successful, it's because they're speaking to these issues, um, both Republicans and Democrats. And so I think they see this as um, an upcoming thing and it's and it's, it's getting to the point, I think it's getting big enough where uh, it is starting to take over the, the national discourse. Um, fascinating book, Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point. You know, he talks about how these trends kind of start uh, to come up early and um, they get to a point where, um, you know, the tipping point, where they they become um, consensus, where everybody starts to think that way. Um, mm -hmm. And I do think that the financial crisis was the start of this trend uh, and that the coronavirus crisis could be the, the tipping point for the trend. Let's leave it there. It's a bit of a silver lining. I like that. <laughs> I guess what we've learned is the U.S. can has a high tolerance for heroin, I suppose, if it started yeah. a decade ago. <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah. Little did we know. Right. Um, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, no, happy to do it. It was an interesting discussion. So. Yeah, certainly yeah. was. Keep posted. Okay. Will right. do. Cool. Have a good rest of the day, Jesse. 
All right, you too. Take it easy. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for enjoying our content. We really appreciate that you're here. If you want to see more, make sure to like, subscribe, tag the notification bell, rate and review if you're on podcast, and definitely leave a comment below of who you'd like us to interview next. We read all of them. We love hearing your feedback. And so we look forward to seeing you next week.